1: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nigat, and as always, I'm very happy to have all of you with us today. We're going to uh, pause, take a pause from uh, looking at the political news of the day to continue um, our series of conversations that will play out over the year 2023 with thought leaders here in Georgia and elsewhere. Today, I'm very happy that we're joined by Sumaya Khalifa, who for many years has been one of the leading voices in the Muslim community of Georgia. Um, She is the head of the Islamic Speakers Bureau, which is an organization which works with with churches, with schools, with businesses, with civic institutions uh, to help bridge the gaps um, that we may have in our understanding of the Islamic culture and the religion itself. Uh, She also is a business consultant who has worked with some of the biggest businesses in the state, including UPS, Coca-Cola, Emory University, and others. Um, Sumaya is the recipient of the City of Atlanta Phoenix Award. The YWCA of Atlanta named her to their Academy of Women Achievers. Atlanta Magazine honored Sumaya as one of their women making a mark. And that's just... Uh, the beginning of uh, the many ways in which she's been recognized for her leadership uh, in Georgia. And Zumaya, I'm so thrilled to have you here. And I think it's um, only right to say you and I have known each other for quite a long time. And um, I've always had enormous respect for your work. So I'm looking forward to this conversation.
0: Bill, thank you so much. It's an honor to be with you on this show. And thank you to all your listeners and your staff for making this happen. Thank you.
1: Let's go back, if we can, um, to your beginnings. You were born in Egypt, but at age 12, your mother was offered a position at um, a medical school in Texas as their lead researcher. And so the family uprooted itself and you came to Texas. And what I've read about that experience for you is that at first, you were really traumatized by it. I think you told an interviewer at one point, you cried because you were coming to a culture that was totally foreign to you. Yes?
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. Thank you for reading up on that. I grew up in a French Catholic school, even though I was I am a Muslim, and um, it got inculcated in me that French was a lot better than English. and so French culture is much more superior, and so um, uprooting from a French culture and French language to God forbid, uh, moving into an English speaking country and the United States—that's just a baby country—that um, was really a, a shock, and uh, my mother. I remember saw me crying, and she said, "Why are you crying? Are you going to miss your, you know, our home? Are you going to miss your grandparents, friends, and so I said, "No, I'm going to a culture that doesn't speak French, and it's English, and all that." So that was that was a big deal for me. And now I reflect back, I just realized how much of the Frenchness was in me at the time.
1: Um, but and you were also coming to a country where you barely you didn't speak English at the time, and. You were a Muslim in a state and at a time when there was very little consciousness about Muslims anywhere in the United States, I think it's fair to say.
0: Yeah, well, at that time, my identity as a Muslim was not really up front and center for me. I was was an Egyptian coming to America at the time, and I happened to be Muslim, so my Muslimness did not really play a role until later in my life.
1: Well, that's a really interesting um, uh, observation. Can we talk a little bit about that? Um, So let me say that you and I have a parallel there. You know that I'm Jewish. Like you, in my early life, I did not really embrace my Judaism. It was later in life that I really began to identify with Judaism in terms of the religion, the rituals of the religion, and certainly culturally culturally. So talk about, if you don't mind, your growing awareness of wanting to embrace your uh, religious heritage.
0: Sure, I think it came from being a majority, part of a majority population in Egypt, and that was just a given. And I came to the states thinking that it's also a given that my religion was part and parcel of me. And but people did not ask me. I mean, I didn't. I they couldn't figure out who I was. Uh, I wasn't Mexican. They thought I was Mexican. I wasn't black and I wasn't white. So that did not quite fit me into anywhere. And I had to explain about Egypt at the time and and not speaking English and, um, you know, French. And I tried to make some French words into English, but I really didn't do a good job. So I had to come up to speed really fast on English and and being part and parcel. And I had, a you know, we initially were gonna only stay here for a year and then go back, which never happened. And um, I I had that longing of belonging and also uh, being part of a majority population versus a minority. So I really never did see myself as a minority until after 9-11. And this came about during a conversation, we were prepping with um, a synagogue down in Fayetteville to do a panel on muslim jewish dialogue and impact of 9 11 and invited all the panelists to be at our our house and have dinner together and we were prepping and one of the jewish ladies she came out to me and she said do you consider yourself a minority and that hit me like a ton of bricks because all throughout my life i was a majority and i thought i was a majority but i really wasn't and 9 11 came out to uh, bring that to light for me
1: um when did you come to Atlanta?
0: Wow, uh, we, my husband and I, and two boys came to Atlanta mm-hmm. in 1988.
1: Okay, so I've um, been here for and, almost
0: and, 35 years.
1: Um, yeah, I get that. Um, so let's let's talk about the work that you began doing. Um, when you did begin to really embrace your uh, Muslim heritage. Um, you, you, because you had started your career, you were you you were you were a chemist at, at one point. You had an academic <laughs> career in many ways, right? Isn't that right?
0: You really dug into my uh, bio. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Um, both my parents were medical doctors, and it was like an untold requirement for all three children, my sister, my brother, and I to be medical doctors, and that never did pan out. So just to appease my parents, I decided, excuse me, Uh, decided to get a chemistry degree and i got my chemistry degree and i worked for an oil company for about maybe six months and i absolutely hated it we're doing research on (laughs) on recovery of oil you know being in texas and i hated it i absolutely hated it and um, at that time i went in to get my mba and then my husband was finishing up his phd and he started moving from texas to south carolina And I wanted to get into something that would be transferable. And I looked at myself and said, well, listen, you like people. Why don't you get into human resources? So I got an MBA eventually after three tries. of moving um, from Georgia State in human resources. And that's what my career was said. But absolutely, I did chemistry. I was in retail for a long time, a few years. And I loved retail. But the problem was, is I put more than what I gained from my paycheck into the story itself. So that was probably.
1: <laughs> so uh, let's move forward to when you really got deeply involved in the Islamic community uh, here in Atlanta. There were there were other uh, Muslim leaders who um, you began to dialogue with. And the idea of creating what became known as the Islamic Speakers Bureau started bubbling up. And in 2001, uh, you founded the Islamic Speakers Bureau. And before we talk about the really kind of chilling uh, circumstance of timing, which is it was just before 9-11, if it's okay with you, I'd like to read from the ISB website how the or you all describe the organization. Fine? Okay with you? Absolutely. You say... ISB provides an opportunity for people to learn about Islam and Muslims in an objective and educational manner through dialogue, outreach programs, presentations, and panels. ISB acts as a catalyst in bringing the American Muslim community to the forefront as active partners alongside other um, leaders. Um, But here's the other thing that you say. American Muslims live in challenging times. Despite being actively engaged members of society who make their contributions on an everyday basis, they're often misunderstood and viewed unfavorably. According to studies, people who are exposed to Muslims often have a better understanding of Islam and Muslims and view them favorably. Favorably. Then you point out that um, Georgia has a significant population of Muslims, what, something like 125,000 Muslims here? Is that right?
0: Yeah. That's a good and over
1: it. and over 80 mosques across the state. So those are the principles around the founding of uh, ISB and we'll talk about it in more detail in a couple minutes. but let's talk about that chilling coincidence. You founded the organization right before 911. a moment which you to this day say um, makes you very, very sad.
0: Yes, yes. So actually, the founding of the organization took a couple of years, uh, a lot of back and forth, uh, the energy, I, I had a full time job in corporate America, uh, two, three children at the time, and, um, you know, and a house and a husband and had a lot of responsibilities, and just still have. But, you know, just thinking back in and someone to who has that much responsibility, jumping in and starting a nonprofit and had no idea about what nonprofits are, no idea about anything at all, but thought it was a good idea and just jumping with two feet in. Um, That's to me, to this day, I'm just wondering what was going on in my mind, you know, what was wrong with me at the time? So, um, but there was a need, there was a need. And that was the time when I, my whole identity came together. I was a Muslim to everyone, I was an American, and I was of Egyptian background to everyone. And so I, I wanted, the whole of me came together, and I wanted to be able to step in and be able to bridge gaps of understanding, bridge gaps um, of involving the American Muslim communities with the larger community. Because as a community, we are part and parcel of, of this larger uh, community and also the state and the country. And how do we make that happen? So that's how it came about. And we had our first training on August the 11th of 2001. And people were curious, you know, here's a new organization because people are only on the Muslim community were only used to mosques and schools that went along with mosques. But having an organization that did something different and not only that, but it was led by a woman and they're going to teach us how to speak about Islam. Uh, What are you talking about? Because we want people to unlearn how they speak about their faith tradition and speak about it uh, from the perspective of the first amendment of teaching and not preaching. Um, that is something that we hold very, very uh, clear with all our uh, speakers and everyone that gets involved with us. So that happened. We had our training. We tested everyone that wanted to be a speaker. 9-11 happened and we had no idea. Well, the day of 9-11, I was in my office, downtown Atlanta, the news broke. I freaked out because I was just thinking, gosh, what if this happens here? And I was also thinking about the people who were in the towers that got hit and what must have felt like. And it was just like a very um, emotional time for me and almost in tears, calling schools and making sure everybody's okay in my family, calling uh, relatives in New York. And uh, to this day, when I think about it, I get very emotional because it just it just kind of takes my whole body to. To, to think about it but um, but the word had gotten out we had a we had a website and shortly thereafter we received calls 9-11 happened and our neighbors and friends and fellow Georgians and Atlantans were curious that who are those Muslims and they you know a, a horrific act was just committed our neighbors the same as those people that claim to be Muslims as well so we had a lot of requests and um, so we decided the board and myself and other key stakeholders that we move forward and let's go out there and and engage with our fellow Americans and answer their questions. It was the right thing to do.
1: You have said to other people who've interviewed you that you do not consider the people who plotted and carried out 9-11 as really having a religion of any kind.
0: Absolutely true, because human life is sacred. Uh, human life is super sacred, and and there is a verse in the Quran, Is I'm sure there is in the Torah and, and other uh, revelations that um, saving a human life is as if saving all humanity. And that's not only the 9 billion people or however many billion are on earth right now, but it's from the time of Adam until the end of, of everything. So that's, that's tons of people. So one life, it's saving one life. It's like saving all of these people. And taking a life unjustly is like taking all these lives. So that is a that's a pretty big thing. It's a horrible thing. And I don't believe that people who do anything like that are really belonging to any faith tradition.
1: Yeah, you reject that they were in fact the Muslims that they claim to be claiming they were carrying out a religious mission.
0: Absolutely. So and um, a lot of times I'm sorry. A oh, lot yeah. of times people just a lot of times people justify their acts uh, using their religion as a front, but there's another agenda that we don't know about. So um, this is something that I despise. Uh, if somebody's going to do something, you know, horrible, you no, know, I don't want them to do it. But if they do it, don't use religion.
1: Sumaya, um, you, it's interesting that in the aftermath of 9-11, you, you tell us you did have a number of organizations reaching out to you um, saying, who are Muslims? Let's talk about what the Muslim religion is, the culture. Um, and, and yet, certainly at the same time, the amount of um, of uh, Islamophobia, the anger toward Muslims in general, uh, grew uh, pretty dramatically. Um how did you witness that or did you feel there was something different happening in, in Atlanta?
0: Um, Bill, there are a lot of studies that have that took place and to measure Islamophobia and when does Islamophobia peak? And it does not peak usually after uh, such an act. It really peaks during election season. Uh, when politicians use minority organization as scapegoats, This is when, you know, when we have the Muslim ban and we have things like that, this is when Islamophobia really rises. Uh, It does rise a little bit after acts of uh, terrorism. And what's really interesting as well is that the word terrorism is um, very specifically used when somebody identifies as a Muslim or has a Muslim sounding name uh, is involved with it. But when anyone else who is outside of that faith tradition it's not called terrorism. It's usually called somebody who's mentally unstable or what have you. But terrorism, for the most part, uh, by most of the media, is, uh, is reserved for, for anybody who identifies or sounds like a Muslim.
1: So l- let me be clear about this. Um, in those days, weeks, months after the attacks, you yourself in were you at that point wearing a hijab? were you wearing a scarf were it, so did you experience uh, moments of uh, of concern, of panic, of of feeling afraid um, just to be out and about at, at a difficult time?
0: Yeah, my husband was very worried about me. Um, somehow, I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm naive, but I wasn't worried. I know a lot of women, Muslim women who did wear the, the headscarf, took it off because of security, feeling insecure, going to the gas station or living their life. Um, I know my own family, um, I, my middle son, his name is Osama, and he worked in a pharmacy. And um, there, there was a, a lady who got her prescription and he filled her prescription and she called the store manager. And she said, is this a crank? Is that a joke uh, to have Osama filling my prescription? And the store manager said, no, he's an employee. He's a great pharmacy tech. And she said, I demand that he be fired because of his name. So the store manager came to my son who was in high school at the time or early college and said to him, here's what happened. You have choices. You could change your name or you could continue being uh, using your name. And my son said, no, I want to continue using my name. So um, those, this is just an example of what the community received. Um, and I'm sure there are a lot more stories about that.
1: Um, so let's talk about the Islamic Speakers Bureau and the kind of trainings that you do. Um, if I were to come to, uh, give, well, first, I think, give us some examples of the sorts of organizations which call upon you and and what they're most interested in learning about
0: yeah so it's a wide variety of organizations it could be uh, colleges um, panels uh, schools where they're teaching about islam and muslims in their curriculum it could be um, faith organizations synagogues uh, churches We just got a request from the Taiwanese women. Uh, They want someone to come in and speak about women in Islam. Uh, We just had a lunch and learn with the uh, Georgia Women's Legislative Caucus, and they wanted to know about Georgia Muslim women. Who are they? What are they? Uh, What are some of their issues that they're dealing with? And so um, we go wherever there is a request about learning about Muslims. Uh, What's really interesting is that a lot of times people really wanna be with the Muslim, wanna um, have that experience with being close to a Muslim and talking to them, because what they hear and see about them is not really what's on the ground. Um, in addition to the speaking that we do as an organization, we're also, we have evolved over the 22 years almost. And we have created recognition programs where we recognize uh, georgia muslims for their amazing achievements with the 20 under 20 with the 40 under 40 with the influential georgia muslims and we tell a narrative that's not out there you know we have the doctors scientists engineers lawyers uh, philanthropists etc and those stories are not told day in and day out and so um that is another thing that we do with the speakers bureau we also uh, started a leadership institute because the muslim community uh you know, needed one. We did not have a uh, leadership institute. and We partnered with Kennesaw State University and we are in the fourth cohort of, uh, of leadership um, development. And we have 44 graduates uh, who are out there. And every day I hear a great story about one of our graduates and it kind of reinforces and validates why we started this uh, the uh, leadership institute. Uh, we are involved with the hunger, uh, the Atlanta Food Bank, and the hunger walk we work in fayette county summer lunch programs we do a lot of interfaith work with all communities and all those things are really important for for us as a community but also for the larger community for atlanta and for georgia
1: uh before we take a break um you mentioned that uh there are people like the legislative caucus that you spoke to recently who want to know about what it means to be a woman in Islam. And, and of course, that is one of the things that many people outside of the religion look at uh, and say um, there is great disparity between the way women in the faith and, and, and men in the faith are uh, uh, treated. Is that a misunderstanding of American uh, life uh, for Muslims or does that, in fact, it exist?
0: Well, um, you know, we could talk about the U.S. and equal pay, right? And in the United States, we say men and women are equal. (laughs) But with my background in human resources, I think last time I checked, (laughs) a woman makes 75 cents on the dollar as a man. So we do have, uh, and I think that's the same thing in the Muslim community, the rights of women are there. um, But it is the same kind of situation as, as when we're talking about the U.S. But we could talk more about that.
1: Well, by the way, the number is now a big gain, 82 cents to the dollar as of uh, the last uh, year, I think, Sumaya. Uh, I do want to pursue that, but I, I, I want to talk more about what it actually means to be a person of the Islamic faith with you. We're going to do that and more when we continue our conversation in just a moment with Sumaya Khalifa. But first, these messages. You're joining us for another one of our conversations with thought leaders. And uh, today, Sumaya Khalifa, head of the Islamic Speakers Bureau, also uh, the head of a uh, consulting business which works with, which works with corporations uh, on a variety of uh, issues that they're dealing with in um, uh, in, in their work, perhaps with uh, Muslim countries um, and Muslims here in the United States. Sumaya, thank you so much again for being with us for this show um so let's talk about uh what it means uh for you and and clearly we all approach our own religions in an individual way but talk to us about what it doesn't mean really to live an islamic life
0: that is a really good question well um islam emphasizes equality it emphasizes uh treating people right. It emphasizes that doing good is is rewarded and um, doing things that are not good is, is of course, you know, people should stay away from it. And Muslims also believe that there is a counter that's going on, on everything that a person does, but not only does, but thinks. And so the idea is for one who is a Muslim who wants to reach a paradise at the end of this life, they have to maximize doing good uh, and to minimize what they do bad. And so it's it's almost like a spreadsheet, right? Uh, of all the pluses and all the minuses. And um, as a Muslim, I want my pluses to outweigh my minuses. And, uh, and that's done by the five pillars, uh, people who you know have to pray, they have to fast, et cetera, do pilgrimage. But not only that, this is only a tool for people to um, control themselves. And, but how do I deal with people? Do I deal with them with respect? Do I have their best interest at heart? Uh, when I am in a business deal, how do I handle myself? Uh, all those things are very important. How do I interact with, with my neighbors? Do I take care of my neighbors? Do I take care of the animals? Do I take care of my family? Uh, do I help somebody who's sick? Do I go visit them? If somebody's in need, do I, am I there for them? So all those things is what makes me who I am. Uh, And it's driven by my faith tradition. It's grounded there of being always striving to be a better person.
1: I think it's interesting to hear you talk about paradise as the reward for living a good life. Um, You know, uh, Jews, and there's debate about this, but for the most part, Jews kind of don't believe in heaven and hell. Jews say your reward is how you live your life while you're on on this earth. But if you don't mind, I want to read you a little bit about what I was— Uh, researching in terms of the Islamic view of paradise. The reality of paradise is something which people will never be able to understand until they actually enter it. But God has shown us glimpses of it in the Quran. He has described it as a place essentially different to the life of this world, both in the very nature and purpose of life, as well as the types of delights which people will enjoy. A place of great blessings, a place of beauty, to everyone. Um, and it goes on to talk about the fact that it is a place where there is no anxiety or sadness, sorrow or regret, every kind of beauty and blessing exists in paradise and will be revealed with perfection never seen or known. That's a wonderful, wonderful vision of an afterlife, Sumaya.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's, that's you know, when, when companies have vision and mission, the vision for a Muslim overall should be that I want to be in paradise and what do I do now in this life, all the tests that I passed through to get me to the final destination of paradise.
1: Um, to what extent is a, t- is a Muslim, typical Muslim, and I know there's no such actual thing, but just go along with me here. How does being a Muslim uh, make an impact on daily life? Is it um, living mindfully, is it a matter of devout Muslims who say the prayers throughout? What is it? Five times a day? Do I have that right? Mm-hmm.
0: It's a balance. It's a balance. So uh, there is a um, a saying in Islam that if somebody goes and just prays all their life, and somebody who who goes out and, and works and earns and and is um, and is pious does not you know do more but just does the minimum the person who goes out and earns and spends money and helps others is a much better place than a person who just devotes their whole life to to praying and fasting so it needs to be a balance between the two there's also a saying that um i think it's an arabic saying is um do for your life as if you live forever and do for your end as if you'll die tomorrow so it's it's a balance between those two
1: Um, Talk about the prayers that are said throughout the day. We've all seen them, I think, depicted in television programs, uh, movies. We see the gestures that uh, Muslims make. But what are those prayers about?
0: Sure. So um, there are five daily prayers. One is at dawn time. One is midday. One is late afternoon. One is at sunset time and one is at nighttime. And it kind of regulates the person, right? So it's, it's almost like getting a car and taking it in for a check-in to the dealer uh, every so often, every 3,000 miles or whatever. So for the Muslim, their check-in uh, with their manufacturer, their Lord, is five times a day. And uh, when they do stand up, they have to be in a state of cleansiness, uh, both mentally and intentionally, as well as physically and space-wise. And they start by saying Allahu Akbar, which means God is greater than anything anybody could think of. They will recite the first chapter of the Quran, which is um, seven, seven verses, and a little bit more of the Quran that they have memorized, and they will kneel um, and, and praise God, and so and then, and then prostrate and praise God again, and that is a one unit of prayer. So each of these five daily prayers is made up of a certain number of units. Um, and again, when a Muslim prays, they feel like they are in direct communication with God. So these are the ones, that, the essential prayers, that the minimum prayers, but there are also extra prayers, like in Ramadan, when Muslims fast, etc., there's a nightly prayer where they complete the whole Quran in 30 days. And so they stand up after the night prayer and recite 1 30th of the Quran um, in congregation. Uh, so these are the physical aspects of prayers but also there is a prayer where a person is constantly thinking about god and uh, remembering god and everything that they do and that tries to keep them focused on being kind um you know there's there's a a power over all powers and that is god
1: we we both know that there are some really remarkable similarities between uh, Islam and Judaism. But of course, it's because we came from the same family. We just went our separate ways. Um, and one of those similarities, I think, is the whole n- concept of mindfulness, being truly aware of every moment of your life to the, con- to the extent you're capable of doing it, showing, gr- appreciating every moment of your life and that's his islamic value too
0: yes absolutely <clears throat> absolutely and you know that's that's that, the 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 supplication the prayers everything is is being grounded is being mindful and there is always Uh, people wrestle with when they're in prayer and their mind wanders. So mindfulness comes in. How do you bring yourself to be present and to be fully into what you're doing? And i got to tell you, I mean, this is something that I struggle with, and I'm sure a lot of people struggle with it as well. But, you know, uh, that's what gets us rewards is continuously trying to be better.
1: So let's talk about the kinds of questions that you get when you go out to do a program for the Islamic Speakers Bureau. What do people want to know about Islam? What are some of the top kinds of questions they ask of you?
0: Well, um, <laughs> one of my favorite ones and uh, totally expect is um, that uh, women are oppressed. And, um, and when that question comes, I just have a big smile. And I think it's, 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 uh, it's multi-layered, right? Because within the U.S. culture lens, we see people who are covered up as being oppressed, and we see people, um, you know, like that uh, to be oppressed. And and then what's interesting is on the other side, people from Muslim majority country, when they see different cultures where they wear bikinis and all that, they feel like they're oppressed. So the perception on both sides is that, hey, you're oppressed because you cover and, hey, you're oppressed because you show your body and you're used for uh, commercials and what have you. So, you know, I kind of look at it. Well, let's look at your American lens and what is it seeing? What does it mean for me? Um, And um, one time at a church, someone, I was on stage many years ago and somebody says, I'm sure your husband finds you boring. I said, I started laughing. I said, well, I'm glad he's not here, right? So it's, um, it's yeah. very interesting to get questions and to tease them out and understand where the person is coming from and then presenting to them what it means to be a Muslim woman, for instance. And uh, my favorite answer to that, uh, you need to be talking to my husband about me being oppressed, uh, you know, jokingly, of course. And, you know, I tell them how, I, uh, you know, I'm, I've got a business, I lead a nonprofit organization, I teach at a university, and I um, my favorite favorite is, uh, his money is our money and my money is my money. And every uh, every woman that hears that says, gosh, yes, I want that too.
1: <laughs> well, I think the question about oppression uh, certainly comes up um, because I, I'm not sure that we are able to differentiate people uh, Different extremes of people in any religion, um, so that when we see what's happening with the Taliban in Afghanistan, where where women are no longer able to go to school um, and to participate fully in the society, uh, it's just automatically transferred to an example of what uh, that Muslims in general oppress women, and, and and that's a problem, as I said, with every religion that we see. If, if we're not careful, we see the whole religion through the lens of the extremists.
0: Right. And when, there's, when there is oppression of women, it's not only women who are oppressed. Other elements of the community or the country is also oppressed. And it does not translate to all. And uh, so we need to be able to separate that and talk about them And not only religion makes up who we are there are so many different layers of it uh, in terms of socioeconomic class, in terms of culture, in terms of uh, countries and, and the list goes on and on. So you know looking at one thing and say this is the religion that makes it happen, I don't think that's accurate or fair to to make that assumption.
1: Um, I do want to go back and talk a little bit about the physical manifestations that, in some cases, set Muslims apart from others uh, in in our communities. And and we'll do that and more uh, in just a minute with Sumaya Khalifa, but we're going to take our final break of the show right now and come back after these messages. Sumaya Khalifa, you talked a little bit about um, the uh, um, uh, physical manifestations, especially of Muslim women um, wearing the hijab. And and the way that sometimes that uh, perhaps makes people uh, uh, unclear about, you know, makes them feel like the other, you're the other. And, and, uh, you know, it's interesting that we have now come to the point where um, Muslim women who wear scarves, as you do head scarves, we see them now on... For instance, CNN has several reporters who we see all the time uh, wearing scarves, Um, not just Western reporters who put on the scarf when they're reporting from uh, an Islamic country, but in fact, women who are Muslims who do it. But there is still, I think, something of a stigma when we see the very devout Muslim women who are completely covered. And, and, And I... I have to say, I sometimes look at them, and although you've explained this a little bit, and I wonder about that sort of devotion and that sort of way Mm -hmm. in which they are separating themselves from the rest of us.
0: Right, right. Yeah, so that's a great question. Actually, um, how one covers is dictated by their culture. So if I'm sitting um, in a mall, and looking if there are a lot of women around, and how they wear their headscarf, it's generational, it's geographic, it's socioeconomic, it's complicated. So um, if someone is from Turkey, they will tie their headscarf a different way. Uh, Someone from India, Pakistan, who is a Muslim, they would do it differently. Somebody from Saudi Arabia, Um, You know, I had to find my own comfort zone on on a scarf and how to put it on. So I like silk scarves that are square and I put them into a um, a, a triangle and then put a a pen here and and tie them in the back. And that's what I'm comfortable doing most of the time. So it's an individual thing, but it's also uh, dictated by culture, what's acceptable in a different culture and uh, what a woman is comfortable with. whether it's it's uh, regular clothing or she wants to wear a loose fitting dress or whatever, it's it's her choice. Or um, as a matter of fact, I... many I'm sorry, many American Muslim women don't cover their hair, and so mm. um, that is something that again is is a personal choice. I want to share that one time uh, someone from a synagogue came up to me wearing a scarf, and he has a Russian background. He said, "You remind me of my grandmother." And I said, well, thank you. I did not know how to take it. But he was telling me that in Russia, that's how she covered her hair when she went out as well. So, you know, covering of the hair is not only particular to uh, Muslims, but different traditions also uh, have had or do have the covering of the hair.
1: I, I want to take, if you don't mind, uh, and, and this is, I, I know, a difficult subject for all of us, but let's go to world affairs for a minute. Um we see increasing tension uh well i don't know we always see see horrible tension between um israelis and palestinians and it's gotten worse since uh the netanyahu government has decided that it has no interest in a two-state solution that it Mm. um is going to expand uh the uh territories as much as possible jewish settlements into as many of the west bank territories as possible now i'm not asking you to get into a discussion of whether Israel is right or wrong, but what I am interested in knowing is how that sort of uh, ongoing uh, battle informs how people view um, Islam here in Georgia, Muslims in Georgia, Israelis in Georgia. How does that play into you, to the conversations that people have with you?
0: Yeah, you know, I wished—I um, really wished I had a magic wand and resolved all the issues around the world, including the Israeli-Palestinian issue, um, loss of life, and you know, lack of justice and human rights, and on and on and on. Whether it's in Israel-Palestine or Ukraine and Russia, or you know, you name it—all the trouble spots that we currently have—and I just wish that human beings coexisted and and respected each other and. And got along, the world will be a much better place. Um, in terms of world events, especially with uh, Palestine and Israel, it does have repercussions here, in terms of Jewish-Muslim relations, uh, because you know, if if uh, it, it just puts that pressure, and how could you be talking to the Muslims, or how could you be talking to the Jews, and all the things that are happening between Israel and Palestine, and we really try to focus in on how can we make our hometown, or state, a better place by working together. Because as minority faith traditions, we need each other, and we need to support each other and collaborate to make it a better world.
1: You know, I don't know if you've ever watched it, but there's a remarkable series that airs on Netflix. It's called Fauda. And it's the story of a, um, an Israeli counterintelligence unit. It's a very violent show. Um, so there are those people who wouldn't want to watch it because of the violence. Um, but it takes us through um, the uh, exploits of this counterterrorism unit, uh, rooting out Palestinian terrorists. Um, but here's what I think is remarkable about the show and why it's important to watch. It, there are never winners in this show. Mm, this is not mm. a show about Israelis uh, winning a particular battle. Um, it is not about Israelis accomplishing uh, a mission necessarily. Everybody loses. Mm, mm. the Israeli The Israeli commandos lose. The Palestinian commandos lose. Civilians on both sides of that fight lose. And in many ways, it, there's a sadness to the show. Yep. But also, I think a, a reality.
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, you know, uh, Fala means chaos in Arabic, and um, you know, the terrorists that that. Uh, that you call about Palestinians, they're called freedom fighters, and I'm sure the other way mm-hmm. of the Israelis as well call people who uh, who fight. There a different way. but it's um, it's a no win situation. It really is a no win situation, and uh, it's sad. It is really sad, and I wish that um, you know all humanity will come to their senses and and create peace on the world because the world, you know, we're not going to be in it forever. And how are we going to leave it for our children and grandchildren? We need to be thinking yeah. about that.
1: Talk to me because we're we're getting a little bit short on time. We have a few minutes left. Talk to me a little bit about how you've seen the view of Muslims in this state, particularly, uh, change over the years. Have you felt that Muslims are more welcomed than they were in the past? Do we understand Muslims better? in general today than we did say 10 years ago or 20 years ago certainly when you started the islamic speakers bureau what what's the view now do you imagine of of islam in georgia
0: yeah what a great question um we don't have data so you know hard solid data doing uh, surveys when we started in surveys now but um looking at representation looking at when you pick up a uh, a magazine, or when you look up at, at anything is, are there Muslims there? Uh, when you look at different organizations, the Carter Center and uh, the other uh, organizations, are there Muslims there? Are they represented? Um, so we are very vigilant and, and very uh, focused on bringing the Muslim voices to whatever table is there. And I think we have made strides, but I can't tell you for sure, we increased it by 10% or 20%. But just by uh, who we're being invited by, and the tables we're getting to speak at, that has definitely gotten to higher levels.
1: You you uh, said that one of the things that you pay close attention to is the number of Muslims who are involved in important professions, doing important work uh, across the state. Um, can you tell us anything about who people we would consider some of the most uh, well-known Muslims in Georgia right now?
0: Sure. Yeah. So um, we have four elected officials in the Georgia legislation. That's the first ever. So Georgia made history. We have two Georgia senators and two legislators, which hasn't happened before. So that is, um, that is a big deal for us. Uh, We have had uh, Muslims very involved in the election process, working on campaigns and on both sides, and uh, being very active there. And I think that's, uh, that's a good thing by feeling like we belong and we are part and parcel of this country. Uh, The medical profession, um, you know, a senior vice president for a major organization is a Muslim, Uh, someone who is uh, with nonprofits, who's a top leader, and um, our influential Georgia Muslim book really tells amazing stories in philanthropy, in medicine, in uh, law, in everything across. And that those are the narratives that we want people to know and hear about
1: so um I, I appreciate you're your telling us that. I mean, certainly in the field of public health with cDC right here you you know that there are public health um, professionals who are have Islamic backgrounds uh, certainly in in medicine as as you point out um, but I guess the question remains, although you're looking to see uh, how Muslims are represented more frequently in TV and magazines, whatever. what about prejudice
0: president. <laughs>
1: prejudice what about ongoing oh, prejudice, prejudice oh, okay. against Muslims
0: absolutely absolutely that's increasing as well uh, and as I mentioned with political cycles that gets really high um, on March the 15th it was the UN's uh, fighting Islamophobia day uh, because there is a lot of there are a lot of studies that indicate Islamophobia is going up uh, we see bullying in schools increasing because of faith tradition. Um, and, you know, uh, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are two faces of one coin. So when somebody is um, anti-Semitic, they're also Islamophobic, and we really need to together fight that, uh, whether it is at the workplace, um, you know, EOC, their, their complaints, of uh, religious pre- prejudice and reasonable accommodation has gone up by multitudes because of a lack of reasonable accommodations
1: and and how do you see that how do you see the fight against that developing
0: well it's um getting allies it's educating it's um calling things out as they are um and you know in the workplace how do how does an employee we tell them bring your your whole self to work but we have also been telling them leave your faith at the door we don't want to deal with that But there is a big push now of bringing your whole self to to work, including your religious practices. That does not mean, you know, coming in and preaching and making it into a mosque or a synagogue or a or a a church, but understanding each other uh, and making employees feel like they belong. And the faith tradition is part of who they are.
1: I mean, a lot of that, it seems to me, is as simple as saying it's one thing to view a religious minority from a distance where you can have all sorts of preconceived notions. It's another thing to sit next to someone of a minority faith um, in this country uh, right next to you and uh, you go to get coffee uh, together. That's where understanding begins. Yes.
0: Absolutely. You know, if we really want to have social change, I'm a firm believer that it happens in the workplace, because the workplace has the weapon and the positive sense of making people do things. And, you know, where do we meet diverse people? We meet them at work. We are not going to meet them at home. We're not going to meet them at our place of worship or on the street. We will meet them at work.
1: Sumaya Khalifa, excuse me. I'm glad we can end this conversation on a positive note. Uh, Of hope for all of us to learn better how we can uh, get along. I've really enjoyed having this opportunity to talk to you uh, today, Samaya, and um, appreciate the work you're doing both with the uh, Islamic Speakers Bureau and your consulting firm, which, by the way, we should plug. You didn't tell us. I don't remember the name of the firm, so give it to us now.
0: It's Khalifa Consulting
1: of course it is. What else would it be? (laughs) Sumaya Khalifa, thank you so much for being on Political Rewind. It's been a joy talking to you. Take care, Sumaya.
0: Thank you so much, Bill. Appreciate
1: it. That's it for for us today. We'll be back with another edition of Political Rewind. But in the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.